0: Listening to the weekly discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Well, yesterday when we left off our discussion of Fuller, we had come to the point where there had been a division in the church, and his uh, pastor, uh, Brother Eve, uh, had left the church somewhat discouraged about uh, Fuller's position that he had taken in the controversy that had developed in the church. Uh, Fuller's mother had thought that perhaps this was going to be the end of any gospel ministry they would have there at Soham and so she had arranged for him to have a trade job in London. Fuller couldn't bear the idea of leaving that small congregation. There were some that had decided they would keep meeting, keep gathering together to try to maintain the gospel witness there in Soham. And Fuller wanted to stay with them. <clears throat> and so he continued. Uh, as the people prayed and got together, they believed that one of the persons that could lead them was Joseph Driver. He had shown himself to be mature and shown himself to be a, quite a, uh, a disciple of the scripture. And so Driver began to lead the church in times of prayer. He gave expositions of passages of scripture. And on one occasion when he was sick, he told a member of the congregation uh, to tell Fuller this. He says that Uh, Mr. Driver hopes the Lord will be with you. And Fuller thought, what does that mean? I hope he's with me too all the time. (laughs) And then when they got there to the meeting, he saw that Driver was not there and they began to have prayer, and then they uh, ask uh, Fuller, one of the deacons was called on to read some part of scripture. And he he said that if I felt the liberty to drop any remarks on it as I went. So he read the passage of scripture. uh, Psalm 35, sorrow may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. (coughs) He had thought about that scripture earlier as he was walking one day, contemplating uh, this particular passage of Scripture, and he had thought at that time that he believed that he could speak for a while on that, so now he's called upon to read and, and drop some remarks on it. So he did so. He felt great freedom. He sp- spoke about a half hour on the passage of Scripture. Well, this, uh, an occasion like this came again. A second occasion he had didn't result in the freedom that he had, and he felt very discouraged. He felt discouraged about this so for about a year he refused any other public exposition. But again, early in 1773, Driver was sick and he called on Fuller to speak. And Fuller chose the passage that time, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. He says, on this occasion, I not only felt greater freedom than I had ever found before, but the attention of the people was fixed. And he says several young persons in the congregation were impressed with the subject. And eventually these young persons professed faith in Christ and were baptized and became members of the church. So Fuller was greatly uh, encouraged by this. He saw that his exposition had borne fruit. He continued every now and then to do these expositions. But he didn't have any sense at that time that this meant he had been gifted for ministry or that he'd be called to ministry. But he certainly was open to it. And in January 1774, an elderly lady, a member of the church, died, and uh, they found a request she had written out before she died. She said, if the church did not think it disorderly, that that Fuller, Andrew Fuller, be allowed to preach a funeral sermon on the occasion of the funeral. The members agreed. They set aside the 26th of that month for fasting and prayer, uh, and... Uh, allowed him to preach the funeral sermon, and at that time also uh, set him aside for the ministry. They called him to ministry, set him aside to it, and then asked if he would begin preaching regularly. Joseph Driver still shared some of the time with him, but less and less, and Fuller became the pastor at Soham. He was asked in July of that year, uh, he continued to resist that. He did not know if the Lord had actually called him, and so it wasn't until February of 1775 that he was ordained, that he was accepted the call to the ministry, and then he was ordained to the ministry in the summer of 1775. He had um, thought much about a particular passage of Scripture, and he claimed this passage of Scripture, something as his as his theme, something that he prayed for himself and that was a resolution of his life. The passage was Proverbs 3, 6, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. Well, Fuller now had the whole uh, responsibility of uh, preaching in the church. He had the pastoral responsibility before him. Uh, he began to sympathize much more with the way uh, Pastor Eve had been uh, dealt with. He realized that there were elements within the church that were always suspicious of the preacher, always <clears throat> wanting to know if he was saying the right thing at the right time. There were others who would be always affirming him and always encouraging him. And so, but there was always something brewing on the edge that could have caused problems, and he became very aware of the delicate nature of the pastoral ministry. He also began to study. And the, his, the, the main study that <clears throat> ministers of the gospel in the Baptist denomination did at that time, they always had to have the commentaries of John Gill. All the, wor- all the works that John Gill had done, they had. And so he had access to the works of John Gill. He read John Gill. Another one who was a, actually converted under the ministry of John Gill was a man named John Brine, who was also a theologian, <clears throat> a commentator, uh, a polemicist, and he would study Brian. And he also was aware of and studied John Bunyan. He had become familiar with Bunyan earlier, as we mentioned in an earlier um, uh, talk on, on Fuller. He had, was familiar with his Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners and of course Pilgrim's Progress. And he became, began to become more aware of some of the published sermons of Bunyan. <clears throat> Uh, He noticed there was a difference between uh, Bunyan and Brian and Gill. He knew that they all held to the doctrines of grace, but he said there was a difference in the manner in which sinners were addressed, both in their writings and in their printed sermons. And at first, he just thought that this was because Bunyan was not quite as sound as Brian and Gill were, that he perhaps was tainted a bit with Arminianism because of the way he played with sinners. But that was just a passing thought, but he continued to study all of them. And he notes at that time, he said, I had not yet learned that the same things which are required by the law are bestowed by the grace of God. this becomes a very important statement for Fuller. It's a very succinct way of, of summarizing uh, pages and pages of theology that he wrote in uh, defending uh, what he would call the gospel worthy of all acceptation. That he had not le- yet learned that the same things which are required by the law are bestowed by the grace of God. This shows that there, though the, 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 the gospel of course is not a law in itself, it is a manner of bestowing salvation upon people But nevertheless, the the grace of God, which operates in conjunction with the gospel, is something, as Fuller would contend, that bestows on sinners things that the law had required and forgives them of their own violations of the law. So he had not seen the continuity there was between law and gospel. He summarized... With respect to the system of doctrines, which I had been used to hear from my youth, it was the high Calvinist, or rather the hyper-Calvinist strain, admitting nothing spiritually good to be the duty of the unregenerate and nothing to be addressed to them in a way of exhortation, excepting what related to external obedience. And so the the exhortations that they would give would be things that related to, conducting yourself well in society, being honest uh, in your business, uh, don't pile up more sins than, uh, <clears throat> against your account uh, than you have now. And so this external obedience, these kinds of admonitions, but uh, lost people would not be admonished to repent of sin and believe the gospel. And so because of that, he had been reared that way. He, he found that particularly John Bryan was a person who was opposed to addressing sinners and telling them to repent, putting before them the obligations to have a saving faith in Christ. He said, for some years, uh, addresses and invitations to the uh, unconverted, Fuller said he did not give them. He did not for some time, address an invitation to the unconverted. Well, as he became pastor in Soham, he. Not only did he find himself preparing sermons, but he also found himself with some extra time for study. And so he began to engage some of the theological issues that he learned were present in the day and other people were talking about these things. Uh, The issue of hyper-Calvinism became a major formative factor in his doctrinal development. And so he began to treat it with some degree of real uh, (coughs) seriousness. Excuse me. I'll get, o- I'll get over this in just <clears throat> a few minutes, but sometimes it takes a while to <clears throat> get those vocal cords warmed up enough. <clears> he <throat> came across a book by a man named Abraham Taylor called The Modern Question. Now, The Modern Question... <clears throat> was, first of all, it was twofold. Uh, Does an unregenerate person have the obligation to repent of sin and believe in Christ? Is it his duty to do so? And then the corollary to that is, uh, if it is not true that the unregenerate person has the duty to repent of sin and believe in Christ, does the gospel minister have the duty to call upon unregenerate sinners to repent of sin and believe in Christ? And those who are hyper-Calvinists would say no to both of those. The unregenerate sinner does not have that duty, nor does the gospel minister have the duty to call upon them. Those who took what was called the positive side of the modern question would say yes, it is the duty of unregenerate sinners to repent of sin and believe in Christ, and therefore the gospel minister, this is a central part of his ministry, uh, to preach in such a way, to build his case in such a way that he can Uh, with uh, sincerity and fervor, call upon unregenerate sinners to believe in Christ. So those twofold questions were things that Fuller began to think about. Uh, Hyper-Calvinism taught that the bottom line question in this issue is the eternal relevance of the moral law of God. Does the moral law of God represent only a temporary arrangement or is it a revelation of a variety of manifestations of God's intrinsic holiness as placed in the context of a temporal order, an order necessarily created by Him? So is there ever any situation, ever any providential arrangement, every, anywhere or any time that A creature made in the image of God is free from obedience to or for doing all he can to be conformed to the law of God. Is the law of God merely a temporary arrangement or is it something that is a reflection of God's eternal prerogative and uh, arising out of his own holiness? Now, all of the on both sides during their discussions, all would agree that the law of God was eternal that there was no place, there was no time, there was no providential arrangement in which a person was free from obedience to the law of God. And therefore, everything that God has commanded in His law and everything that is in the heart, written on the heart that implies the law of God is something that a sinner can be admonished to do. Even if he is unable because of moral inability to obey the law, he still can be admonished to obey the law because that is eternal and that was revealed in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, that was a test of their willingness to obey the law written on the heart, the eternal moral law of God, to obey God, to love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. But, was there ever anything within that arrangement (coughs) that implied that they had the obligation to relate themselves to God in any way other than through their personal obedience and personal righteousness? Was there anything within that arrangement that implied that they should relate themselves to God through a mediator, through someone else's obedience? John Bryan (coughs) talked about the different powers in man, and he talked about the power of special faith in Christ. The power of special faith in Christ was not a power that was given to man in his unregenerate condition or in his unfallen condition because there was no need for him to exhibit special faith in Christ. This is something that is added and something that is not necessarily contained in the law written on the heart. Repentance from sin and special faith in Christ were neither powers nor duties in the unfallen state, and thus cannot be so now. So Brian reasoned, The communication of such a power to man in his primitive state would have been in vain, for there was no necessity nor use of believing in Christ in that state. And I humbly conceive that man was not furnished with a power, the exertion of which was unnecessary, so long as he should remain in his perfect state." And then a second point that Brian made, because God could not require man while in a perfect state to put forth such an act as special faith in Christ is, the reason is evident this act necessarily supposes a dependence on Christ for salvation as a creature lost and miserable in ourselves. But till man was fallen and become miserable, he could not exercise such a trust in Christ as a Redeemer. So it was not a power or an obligation given to man in the unfallen state. He goes on to say, It seems to me a very extraordinary dispensation that man should be furnished with a power he could not exercise in his perfect and then be deprived of it in his fallen state, wherein alone it is useful. So if he had the power to believe in Christ in his unfallen state and now that he's fallen and needs to exercise his belief in Christ, such a power is taken away from him, to him this seemed to make God the author of great confusion and would not make him a gracious God but would make him a God who had higher expectations of humans than it was legitimate even for God to have. Therefore all the powers that man had in the unfallen state That was to obey God, to obey his law, to obey that law that was written in the heart. Those were things that he had powers to do. He's lost his powers to do that by his own sin, so his inability to obey the law is still his fault because he had those powers at one time. But powers to believe in a Redeemer, to believe in Christ, to exert faith that has to do with trusting in a mediator to do that which we had the power to do in the unfallen state does not seem to him to be legitimate at all. It does not seem to be biblical. (coughs) And so the effect this had on preaching was an effect that was uh, in which the gospel would be described, repentance and faith would be defined, but No one in the congregation would be called upon to exert repentance from sin and faith in Christ in a saving manner. Only those who are already regenerate would be uh, taught about the work of the Holy Spirit in their sanctification. The problem was that they made the warrant to faith an internal examination of the nature of saving faith by one who is supposed to be unregenerate. You have no warrant to believe unless you can determine that there is a special power being given you by the Spirit to have faith. When you determine that you have this special power being given you, then you have the obligation to exert it. And this is a confusion of what was called the warrant to faith with the way of faith. Usually the way of faith is seen as that which depends upon the regenerating power of the Spirit the existing of a holy principle within a person, a heart that is changed, a heart that will uh, see the goodness of the gospel, will repent of sin, will see the loveliness of Christ, will see the power of the gospel. If you discern that you have that heart, then you know that God is giving you that power and then you have the obligation, the duty to believe. But until then, you do not have the duty to believe, and the minister cannot call upon you and, and, and enforce that duty on you. And so therefore, it also, as Fuller points out later, substitutes that which is not revealed truth, that is, that such and such a person will be given power to believe in the gospel. That is not revealed in scripture. So it substitutes that which is not revealed truth for that which is revealed truth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out to as many as believed in him. To them, he gave the right to become sons of God. Those are the things that are revealed. And so the condition is a general condition We know that it is only given to the elect, but the invitation is given, the condition that is set forth is a universal condition that has a specific qualification, and that is believe with your heart. And it was this that caused Fuller eventually to say, yes, (coughs) you cannot believe your heart is uh, turned away from God, but still, as we know, that is a moral inability, that is a moral corruption, and you should believe with your heart. You should love God with all of your heart. And so this uh, this conflict with with hyper-Calvinism, this is something that he began to deal with very early. (coughs) Excuse me. So we're back to these issues of of, does duty imply uh, ability? And one of the things that Fuller continually points out in his ministry is the Uh, The likeness between the high Calvinist or the false Calvinist or the hyper Calvinist, as he called them, he uses all of these, these terms, and on the one hand, and the Arminian on the other, is their belief of the same thing about the relationship between ability and duty. So, if you ask the question, does duty imply ability? The Armenian says, yes, duty always implies ability. And <clears throat> if there is no ability, therefore, there can be no punishment in not obeying a command. But the Armenian says, since there clearly is duty, therefore, each sinner possesses the ability to repent and believe. Well, the hyper-Calvinist answers, yes, duty, implies ability. Duty always, always implies ability. If there is no ability, there can be no punishment in not obeying a command. And so the hyper-Calvinist says, since the sinner has no ability to repent and believe, it must not be stated that it is his duty to do so. And he will not be punished further for his refusal to believe and repent when these are powers that he does not have and never did have. So they come out, they they take the same premise, they come out at different places because one says, we have the duty, therefore we have the ability. The The other says, we do not have the ability, therefore we do not have the duty. The hyper-Calvinist denies the duty to repent evangelically and believe the gospel because the requirement was not present in his original condition of innocence, Innocence, fallen man, is guilty and should obey the law of God, although he cannot, but the law originally was written on the heart. The law was present with man in his unfallen state. The simple positive command he received not to eat of the fruit of the tree was the test of his willingness to obey the law written on the heart, but his present obligation goes no further than that kind of obedience. He will be justly condemned for refusing to obey the law, but Refusing to obey the gospel will not in any sense aggravate his condemnation. During the years of his ministry, Fuller stated, I had not yet learned that the same things that are required by the law are bestowed by the grace of God. It's this continuity between law and gospel that Fuller begins to emphasize so much. Well, another, another theological issue that he dealt with that resulted in, in polemical engagement <clears throat> was a question on the pre-existence of the human soul of Christ. There were some who were very warm for this opinion. They believed that Christ's human soul was given him uh, before he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so when he came as the Son of God that was already connected with his eternal position as Son of God, a human soul. Fuller offered to demonstrate to them that their view led to atheism, or he would give up his position, his opposition to the view. Well, he engaged some of these in a conversation, and this was a view that Isaac Watts eventually took, that there was the preexistence of the human soul of Christ. They viewed the human soul to be a party to the everlasting counsels of God, that when we have these statements about uh, redemption. In fact, they, they might even <coughs> use uh, something like Psalm 2 to say, I will tell of the decree. You are my son, today I have begotten you. They would interpret that as being the existence of the human soul in eternity at the time the decree was, was ordered. And so Thor <coughs> asked, um, so you believe the human soul must necessarily be a party to the decree. The human soul must be something that is, uh, that is engaged within the eternal covenant of redemption. They consented, yes, God cannot take counsel with himself for counsel implies more than one, but God is one and therefore the human soul of Christ must be there. This, there's, there are bunches of errors in that, but that is, that's the point that they're, <coughs> they're making. But, Fuller said, the human soul because it is human is a created thing and therefore it has not always existed. Yes, that is true. It was created. It could not be eternal. Well then, if the human soul is a party to the eternal covenant of redemption, it can no longer be called the eternal covenant of redemption, can it? Because the human soul of God is not, the human soul is not eternal. Then you must suppose that till the great God had a creature to take counsel with, he had no plan. He had no plan of redemption. Prior to this act of creation, he was without counsel, without plan, without design. But being without a plan, without purpose, without design is not characteristic of God. Therefore, you do not have a God. You're landed upon atheism. Uh, they were a little bit flummoxed by his <coughs> reasoning, but they, they, they saw the power of it. Uh, he applied texts concerning Christ's preexistence to his humanity instead of his deity They had put themselves not only in the way of atheism, but the way of Arianism. Uh, And so Fuller was able to convince them that this was an erroneous doctrine. This led then to another controversy about the sonship of Christ. Was this a title that was related only to the incarnation, only to the existence of, of Christ as in his humanity Was Jesus the only begotten son because he was born of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or is the title son of God one that accrues to him before the incarnation? Is this something that is an eternal title of his? Well, Joseph Driver believed the first. He believed that he was the only begotten son of God because he was uh, born of Mary by the power of the Spirit. Fuller was not convinced of that, but he encouraged Fuller to study all the New Testament passages in which the title, Son of God, appears. And in doing this, he could determine if it is an eternal name that is given or if it is only temporal. Is it used to denote his relationship to Mary as the virgin mother moved upon by the Holy Spirit or to his eternal relationship with the Father? Well, Fuller followed Driver's advice, and he began to read all the places where the title, Son of God, was either given specifically or was implied. One of these places, of course, is Psalm 2. And so, the the section that says Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage the ends of the earth, your possession. Now, is this something that he is speaking about in his temporal conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary that he becomes the Son of God? Or is this a title that is being used by the Father in their eternal state? And the text says, I will tell of the decree. So this is dealing with the time in which, or the, the, the point at which the decree of the victory of this one who is the Son of God will have over all forces that are against him in the world. But it, it is at the point of the decree. And so when he says, you are my son, he's talking about a specific condition that is present at the time the decree is given, and so it cannot be something that is temporal. It has to be something that is eternal. Now, is this title, the Son of God, something that then becomes appropriate to give to Jesus at the time of his incarnation because he already is Son of God, or is it something that simply means he has been conceived by the Holy Spirit? Well, we go to (coughs) Luke chapter one and we see how this title is something that uh, becomes important <clears throat> in an understanding of what's happening in the incarnation Luke chapter 1 <clears throat> beginning with verse 26 In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now look at the juxtaposition of those two titles. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and he will be given the throne of his father David. So, what does a son of the most high mean? Well, the son of the most high, that is speaking of the operation of the father, the son of the father. But in his incarnation, it is David who is his father. For he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called most holy, the son of God. Now in what sense here is he called the son of God? There are two things that are operating. One, the Holy Spirit comes upon her, and that is the impregnation of Mary. That is the creation of the human nature of Jesus in the womb. But at the same moment, in the same time, exactly contemporaneous with with this, the Most High will overshadow you. Well, what does this mean, the Most High overshadowing her? Because the one that will be born in her is the Son of the Most High. Now this is, uh, <clears throat> Fuller came to affirm what is called the doctrine of eternal generation. And the reason that this language is like this, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, uh, or, the, or the, uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This means that it, at the same moment that there is a conception of a created being and a finite being, uh, a, a human nature, the eternally generated Son of God, eternally generated from the Most High, eternally the Son of the Father, now fulfilling this decree, the one who already is the Son of God, you are my Son, today, meaning in eternity, in eternity you are being begotten, today I have begotten you. At this particular moment, the Most High comes over her, and that eternally generated Son of God assumes to himself in the exact moment of the conception that which the Holy Spirit implants within her through uh, his uh, power of conception. So the child to be born will be called holy. He is without sin. He is generated by the spirit. He does not come from Adam. He has no corruption, but he is a child that is conceived in her womb but he is a child that will be holy. And at that same moment, he also is the son of God because the power of the most high has overshadowed her at the moment that the Holy Spirit has impregnated her. And so you put Psalm two together with Luke one and what happens and you begin to realize that this plan of of the conquering of all the nations and the obedience of all nations to him was a decree resident within the triune God in which the Most High, in which the Father has a plan to honor His Son, His Son whom He loves, the Son that is the product of His eternal love, the Son that is the exact representation of His nature, the Son that eternally exists out of the Father's own conception of Himself in an eternal way so that He shares the very essence of the Father and is uh, of the Father's love begotten, as it were. And this plan in Psalm 2 is to honor and glorify the one who is the Son of God, and this is the place in which it begins to come to culmination. He also looked at John pass like John 5:18. <clears throat> It says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. The Jews understood the father-son relationship to be one of like essence. This is why you have all the begotten's in, in the Old Testament and Adam begat a son in his own likeness. It's merely a, an accident of time, an accident an accident of finitude that those that we beget come after us, but the, the truth of begetting is, is that those we beget have the same nature that we do. So if, if, if God begets, then the one that is begotten by God is the one that is of his same nature. That's why this language is used about us when we are begotten spiritually. He that is begotten of God does not continue in sin because his holiness has now become resident within our nature sanctifying us but this begottenness in eternity means that jesus is of the same nature as god so he was calling god his father making himself equal with god then galatians 4 4 became an important passage for Fuller in this also. But when the fullness of time had come, and again, he might relate this back to Psalm 2, the decree that is given, but now the fullness of time has come for this plan, for this decree to begin to take place. The fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. He sent forth his son. And Fuller looked at that and considered that this means that the one that was sent forth was already the son. Hebrews 1, chapter eight. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of up- uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions of the Son, he says. And so he says, this is a statement that is made at the time the decree has been made, and he calls him the Son. He's the Son already. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Verse <clears> 8. <throat> Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And Fuller interpreted that to mean that although he was a son, meaning although in his very nature as God, being the son of God, he was perfect and impeccable and immutable. Nevertheless, in his incarnation, in his humanity, he went through a time of testing so that obedience was something that became more and more characteristic of his life as he went through life and saw the things that he must suffer in obedience. And finally, verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so he, he took this to mean that this is a relationship between Jesus as he is in his permanent state of deity being eternally the Son of God, but it shows how radically um, and uh, astounding this, this doctrine of reconciliation is. It's the one who is eternally Son of God, submits himself to a condition in which he, will, he himself will learn obedience through what he suffers. And though he is perfect and immutable, in his humanity, will be made perfect and therefore became, become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, there, there are other verses that he uses, but these seem to be particularly <coughs> important. <coughs> Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Fuller took this to mean that this is speaking of Jesus in his eternal state as Son of God. The Son of God appeared. The Son of God took upon himself our flesh. The Son of God was was manifest in the flesh. (coughs) Well, these convinced him of uh, this doctrine of the eternal sonship of Christ. Eventually he, he affirms it in the terms, the orthodox terms, the eternal generation of the son. And so he came to believe that this title was of, was of an, a, a, an eternal personal distinction for Jesus Christ. His work at this time prepared him for his polemical engagement eventually with the Socinians in their denial of the deity of Christ and with Uh, The deists also, in their relegation of Christ, simply to uh, the position of a man. Uh, And so during this time at Soham, he's preparing himself theologically for these future polemical engagements, which we will talk about in a little bit more detail later. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.